0: What is zealous advocacy and can lawyers go too far Stacy Rosenzweig from Holling and KO joins us to talk about Rudy Giuliani's suspension from the practice of law plus much more I'm Lawrence Coletti and this is legal talk today <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. It's great to be here with you again. We've got a packed show today. We're going to jump right into it. But first, got to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit TrustNota.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's notice spelled N-O-T-A. And remember, terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's welcome our guest, Stacey Rosenzweig. She's a shareholder at the law firm of Holling & Ko. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So Stacy, you're a lawyer for lawyers when they actually need a lawyer. So can you tell us about your practice and professional responsibility?
1: All right, well, like you said, I'm a lawyer for lawyers when they need lawyers. I represent attorneys at all phases of the disciplinary process uh, if a complaint's been made against them. Also beforehand, uh, to avoid complaints being made against them, uh, proactive counseling, fee agreement review, website review, things like that. I work with bar applicants uh, who may be facing some character and fitness issues, reinstatement applicants for people who've been suspended from the practice and want back in, a variety of things. And also relevant here, I have a pretty robust election and political law practice. So this is a great intersection of what I do.
0: So in short, you're the ideal guest for what we're talking about today.
1: I'll leave ideal up to you, but uh, I think... uh, it'll be fun.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. So uh, one, one of the things, Stacey, that uh, I kept coming back to this article I read related to what we're talking about today was an article written by Bob Carlson, of course, the uh, former president of the American Bar Association. He at this ABA Journal article and it was titled, Defense of the Unpopular, Lawyers Should Not Suffer Backlash for Defending Rights of Unsympathetic Clients. And In that article, he wrote about John Adams defending the soldiers, uh, the British soldiers, uh, after the Boston Massacre, and that was an incredibly unpopular decision in Boston at the time. He got a lot of ridicule for it, but he held to his principles, and those principles became a cornerstone of how we practice law today. Everyone deserves a fair trial. It's been on my mind a lot lately with these uh, sanctions that have been talked about with Sidney Powell, and of course, we're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani, but. In spirit of that, in spirit of John Adams representing the British soldiers as a, a general matter and kind of in your own words, what do you think a fair trial is?
1: Well, you know, I, I think a fair trial, it's a foundation of our democracy, uh, frankly. And as you stated, a defense of the unpopular is important. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that defense or advocacy in favor of every unpopular position for an unpopular client is is necessary. But in order for our criminal justice system to work, Criminal defendants are entitled to counsel, and that includes people accused of heinous crimes, Uh, that includes unpopular defendants generally, and everybody has the right to access the courts with some limitations that we'll discuss here. And so a fair trial in those situations, they comport with due process. That means a fair public hearing within a reasonable time in front of an independent or an impartial tribunal. Uh, there's a right to call and confront your witnesses, a right to counsel, a right to um, present evidence and object to other evidence. Things like that. Due process is important.
0: Well, as lawyers, uh, we have that duty to represent our clients well. They call this the the zealous advocacy duty. And so, just in terms of that, you know, what does that mean? Why is being zealous in your representation so important?
1: Well, zealous advocacy means, at least in in my words, doing everything reasonable within your means and ability to help the client achieve the goals that they communicate to you. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean taking every possible advantage or striving to win at all costs, no matter what bridges you burn in the meantime, but it's important. It's part of the duties of competency and diligence that you can represent your client and you're loyal to them, you give it your all.
0: Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And so uh, just kind of building that out just a little bit, as I was kind of reading and preparing, you know, lawyers, you know, are they required to be able to prove every single aspect of their client's claim 100% without doubt before they're allowed to enter a courtroom?
1: Oh, not at all. Um, In fact, uh, often lawyers don't have that proof and can't get that proof, or at least can't get admissible evidence beyond what their clients have to say. Uh, when they go into court because the evidence may be in the sole possession of the opposing party. You see this a lot in things like employment law where the direct evidence of discrimination may be in the employer files and the employee knows what they've seen. Um, And so the lawyer conducts a reasonable investigation based on what they have available and then they can file the complaint based on what the client tells them, what they've investigated. Uh, When they sign that complaint or anything else that they file They affirm that what they've included either has evidentiary support or that the claims or defenses that they've asserted in that pleading are likely to have evidentiary support after a reasonable opportunity to investigate or conduct discovery. Now, both states and and the federal rules of civil procedure have slightly different versions of this, but lawyers sign on to this. So, this doesn't mean that uh, you need to prove every element of your case, but you need to have a reasonable basis for it when you go in.
0: So far, we've talked about what zealous advocacy is. So what are some of the limitations on this? And I mean, you got into it just a little bit before. There are some limitations on what a lawyer can and can't do. But, you know, since you're in this arena and practice in this area of law, you know, what examples have you seen? That's probably the best way to explain it.
1: All right. Well, I've seen examples of lawyers going too far in presenting information they know to be false or that they know to be misleading on behalf of their client because their client tells them to. I've seen lawyers act just completely inappropriately, yelling, pounding the table, squaring, not usually in court, but sometimes at depositions, sometimes in conferences. In Wisconsin, where I practice, uh, we have an attorney's oath that requires attorneys to refrain from all offensive personality, uh, which is just, it's a great phrase for lawyers. Uh, And I know a few other states have a similar version and lawyers can be disciplined for violation of the attorney's oath here. Um, But going into offensive personality, making threats uh, is a case I've seen involving that Uh, driving, I believe it was a tractor trailer into the opposing party or opposing counsel's uh, car, things like that. Wow, Um, That goes beyond uh, what is normally considered zealous advocacy. When you want to win or create that advantage at all costs, no matter who it hurts or no matter how obnoxious you are about it.
0: Now, when a lawyer crosses that line, what are some of the things that can happen to them? Now, you mentioned some punishment, some sanctions, but what does that mean, uh, I guess, specifically?
1: It sort of depends on where these things happen. If a lawyer files something false or misleading in court or says something that they know to be false in court or behaves in an inappropriate, wholly inappropriate manner in court, uh, the judge can impose sanctions on the lawyer depending on the state or the federal jurisdiction, everybody has their statutes that work and and their local rules that work a little differently. Um, But these could involve uh, contempt findings, monetary sanctions, striking of pleadings, even dismissal of cases and egregious matters. And now sort of independently of where this occurs, lawyers can be disciplined. A complaint needs to be filed with the disciplinary authorities. Sometimes judges can make complaints. And I've also seen occasional orders, not here, but elsewhere, I've read about them, orders from the court requiring lawyers to self-report bad behavior in the courtroom to their disciplinary authorities for consideration. So each state handles this a little differently. And in Wisconsin, where I practice, if somebody gets a complaint that gives rise to discipline, it can range from a private or a public reprimand to a suspension to license revocation. Uh, Different states use different terminology for these matters. Now, Wisconsin does not have lifetime disbarment. An attorney whose license is revoked can apply for reinstatement after five years, but other states do have lifetime disbarment where once they're done, they're done, they're out.
0: That's on the extreme end, you know, that's sort of like the most severe punishment.
1: Right. My clients will occasionally refer to it, even though we don't have it here, but people consider it a professional death sentence.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Well, now that we've got a nice uh, little uh, foundation for uh, zealous advocacy and uh, what happens if lawyers uh, push that too far, and and some of these punishments for lawyers, you know, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? You know, he just recently had his law license suspended, and so. At this juncture in time, as this has happened, and this this episode uh, we'll publish a couple days after our recording, where are we with this? You know, this suspension, what does it mean? Does it mean he's permanently suspended? Does it mean he cannot practice law right now? Does it have to scale down? Can he appeal? Where are we with this?
1: Giuliani was suspended on an interim basis. This is ahead of the larger disciplinary investigation and ahead of a hearing. In New York, this means that the Attorney Grievance Committee concluded that there was uncontroverted evidence of misconduct to such an extent that there was an immediate threat to the public interest if he continued practicing law. Now, this means that for now, Giuliani can't practice law in New York. Now, according to a petition he filed last year in a Pennsylvania federal court, he was also admitted to the D.C. Bar and a few federal courts, if he remains in good standing there, and frankly, I don't know how, where he remains uh, in those various bars, he can still practice there in less until those bars act independently. Every jurisdiction is independent, though many will impose reciprocal discipline, but again, in and until they do so, he's still in good standing in other places and he can practice there. But he does need to sit down in New York until further order of the court. I do need to caveat this. This is an extraordinarily rare occurrence. Uh, in a magazine article, one of the attorneys who put together one of the complaints that went to the New York authorities called this, a, I believe, a once-in-a-generation occurrence. Typically, attorneys who are facing discipline are allowed to continue to practice until a final order says they can't. In Wisconsin, I'm only aware of a handful of cases that invoke a similar procedure, uh, suspending a lawyer ahead of uh, a final disposition. Sometimes those involve just failing to cooperate, and then becomes a summary suspension for failing to cooperate more as a sanction for not responding to a disciplinary complaint than anything else. But more rarely, it's when there is that public interest or the protection of the public uh, requirement. And these tend to be cases involving criminal convictions, serious felony convictions, stealing from clients, other uncontroverted allegations that Will probably result in revocation. And this is a way of handling it in order in an orderly fashion prior to the full adjudication. But those are rare. And it's my understanding that these are rare in New York as well, especially considering this didn't involve stealing from clients or a criminal conviction. It involved misstatements. Now, these misstatements happen to be about the integrity of a federal presidential election. And that's problem. Nonetheless, this isn't what I tend to see here. Uh, now, Giuliani will have the opportunity to have a full and fair hearing after an investigation, and at the end of the process, it could be found that he should be suspended for a certain length of time or disbarred completely, or it can be found that his conduct doesn't warrant further sanction, in which case he'd be entitled to practice law again.
0: Okay, now before we get into some of the reasons, I want to talk about the regulatory body that brought this. Now, I read the case and went through the different reasons and some of the pushback that the court had. So I guess what governing body brought this case, and I guess how did it originate?
1: Right. Again, I, with the caveat that I don't practice in New York, it's my understanding that the New York Grievance Committee that handles these things received a good number of complaints, uh now this happens whenever a prominent lawyer does something on TV or in the media that gets negative attention. You see people on social media, I get my phone goes goes haywire. People are like, what can we do about this? And you see people on social media saying everybody should flood the state bar with complaints about this person. Now, the state bar isn't always the the authority that handles discipline in various states. Like in Wisconsin, it's the Office of Lawyer Regulation, which is an arm of the Supreme Court. And if you send the state bar a complaint about somebody, they will tell you to go talk to the OLR because there's nothing they can do about it. It's my understanding that Dozens, if not hundreds of complaints came into the grievance committee, and I do know that at least one substantial complaint was filed on behalf of several dozen academics and New York bar leaders. So that's going to get the grievance committee's attention more so than a a member of the public who sees something they think is inappropriate on TV.
0: Uh, yeah, that'll definitely carry some weight. And so, well, before we get into some of the reasoning behind it, what you thought about this court decision, I'm going to share my opinion as well, but uh, let's just briefly go down some of the stated reasons why the court here found it and decided that it was uh, appropriate to, at least on a temporary basis, suspend Rudy Giuliani from practicing law in New York. So these are about things he said, like you mentioned. So things he said in public, things he said in court, things he said before a legislature.
1: Right. And you know, this was a lengthy opinion. And the court that issued the opinion made it very clear that there were numerous uncontroverted claims of professional misconduct. And again, Giuliani had the opportunity to respond you know, in some fashion to this. And at the end of this process, the court determined that these were uncontroverted. He didn't respond with enough to avoid the temporary suspension. Now, the court found violations of three major rules of professional conduct. New York, as most states do, follows the Model rules of professional conduct that are put out by the ABA. There may be some variations, but generally speaking, they found uh, violations of Model Rule 8.4 sub C, which prevents uh, or prohibits lawyers from engaging in any conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, misrepresentation. They also found a violation of 4.1, which prohibits misstatements made to third parties in the course of representation, and that includes rep- misrepresentations made to the press and the public, at least as this court interpreted it, and also 3.3, which prevents misstatements or prohibits misstatements by attorneys before a tribunal, uh, including a court or other adjudicative body. Now, the court made it very clear that these statements came from all over, press conferences, including the famous Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Front of a Garage Door press conference. They drew from state legislative hearings, radio broadcasts, podcasts, TV appearances, the radio broadcasts where he was a guest and was a host, but there was only a single court appearance that they drew from. And that court appearance was the one in Pennsylvania that I talked about earlier with that petition for Pro Hoc vice admission. And Giuliani represented in court and made a lengthy argument about fraud, about voter fraud in Pennsylvania. But by that point, there were no live voter fraud claims in that lawsuit. And he sort of admitted that at the at the hearing, but he he used this as a bully pulpit and put forth some arguments that were plainly not before the court. And the court wasn't happy with this. And the court required some briefing to clear some of this up. And the New York court here found that this argument about fraud that wasn't there and it, it included some, some statements that were plainly not true violated those three rules. Um, you know, the Four Seasons Total Landscaping Press Conference got some ink in the opinion as well because of the false statements made about dead people voting. And they found that this was in the course of representing the Trump campaign. This wasn't citizen Giuliani speaking on his own behalf.
0: Now, I've got a couple more questions I want to get through. We are running a little short on time, but there's one I want to invest a little time on. And so this first one, I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to answer it. Now, I'm not the expert, so I'm going to answer kind of the way I feel about how this court decision came out. And while I'm doing that, if you could think about your answer and, you know, you get the final word here because you're the expert. But the question is this, you know, what, what do you make of this court's decision against Rudy Giuliani? Did they did they get it right? Were they too aggressive? Were they, you know, somewhere in between? And so, you know, I read this and I was pretty torn, you know, for my part. And so I very much respect the courts and I very much respect the bars and these disciplinary authorities because, you know, as attorneys, we do have the ability to really shape people's lives in the work that we do. We can take property, we can take freedom, we can take life depending on, you know, what kind of court case we're in. So, you know, attorneys have major responsibilities and we sh- you know a- as a profession we should be held to a very high standard and to the point that you were making you know uh, Rudy Giuliani kept publicly talking about these things even when evidence was pushed back from the state governing bodies you know related to elections um, on several states and so he kept saying these messages even after maybe uh, hand count audit and some of this information came back and I think that was one of the things that the court was concerned about and I think that that's correct to re- you know give that information back some uh, you know serious weight but one of the things that kind of tripped me up a little bit, um, you know, maybe caused me to question a little bit, if this was Ford Motor Company, and Rudy Giuliani was suing Ford Motor Company, and Ford Motor Company happened to be operating in all the states, you know, the court is going to go and say, we just talked with Ford Motor Company, and they disagree with your allegations here. And so now we're going to suspend you from the practice of law. And these states are defendants, potentially, in these allegations that Rudy is making. And so I'm not saying Rudy is right. I'm not saying he's right at all. But, you know, they are potentially defendant here, you know, raising a point. And so I just thought that there was a lot of weight, you know, assigned to a uh, a potential defendant. But I also thought about the context of these cases as well, you know, and this was a very unusual election. You know, there were hundreds of pre-election cases that were filed that didn't get full redress, you know, before the election. And so in oftentimes in these cases, they said, well, harm hasn't happened yet. So it's not Ripe for us to make a decision. So that went along. And then after the election, there's this very small window to bring these cases. And so there's a lot of shotgunning it and trying to get this information before the court to preserve that right to bring the case. And in this course of time, there were thousands of sworn affidavits from people that under you know penalty of perjury said they saw unusual things happening with the election. Also, there was a record number of mail-in ballots that were part of this process. country had never seen anything like this before with COVID. So, you know, unusual, right? You know, none of these things by themselves prove anything. And, you know, in just a couple personal accounts, while I was watching the election, you know, I saw some, you know, four separate state major vote counting places all stop counting at relatively the same time. And I thought that was unusual. Does it prove anything? No, but even on just the numbers itself, you know, some of these statistics, and I know Rudy was relying on these, you know, both presidents set records for votes, right? Um, So, President Biden, he won obviously, but he set a record number, 81 million votes in this election. But had President Biden not won, uh, it would have been President Trump setting the record, 74 million votes. So, very high voter turnout, you know, statistically very, um, you know, not regular um, as as compared to past elections. Bellwether County's got it wrong, you know? So, and just and I'll close it out with just a couple examples here. Bellwether County's got it wrong. These are, for people that don't follow the political wonkery, these are uh, counties that traditionally pick the presidential candidate who wins. And so Biden carried one of 19 of those Bellwether counties and still won, whereas Trump got 18 out of 19. And just to put that in context, that's what Obama got when Obama won his presidential uh, election. And so last point I want to make here before I kind of hand it back to you, key states, it's been a very long time since any presidential candidate has won without winning these three states, Florida, Ohio, and Iowa. Biden loses all of those and still finds a way to win. So statistically speaking, this is a very unusual election and there was not a lot of time to you know get all this put together. And there was a lot of uncertainty here. And I think, and this is the part where it kind of causes me some pause the court is where people take these disputes when they feel that they've been wrong. This is where these disputes belong. And, uh, you know, in this case, they weren't able to get into court. And I think that led to a lot of frustration. And that's kind of where I side here. I'm not saying Rudy was right, but I think that this particular punishment maybe was a little harsh and maybe they should have stopped short of that. But I'm not the expert. That's why you're here. And so that's why I want to hand it back to you.
1: Right. Well, there there was a lot in there. Yes, there was. Um, and I'm and sorry. I think, yeah. Oh, no, no, no worries. With regard to the the voting fraud allegations, you know, this was an unusual election. It was a highly polarized electorate. There was COVID-19 to contend with, you know, and also I was involved in both pre and post election processes, including the Wisconsin recount of the presidential election. And the thing here is that the people who on the losing side of this election You know, when you allege voter fraud in a way that uh, and you want to overturn the results, the duly certified results of an election and change who the winner is, who the certified winner is, that is a high bar. Oh, for sure. That is a really high bar. And you're not just you're not allowed to go into court without a basis. Like I said earlier, you don't have to have 100 percent proof of everything, but there needs to be some factual basis or some good faith belief that this is going to turn out after discovery and court after court, after court, turned that down. Again, Giuliani isn't being disciplined here, at least not on paper for the fact that this was an unusual case and he represented an unusual client or an unpopular client among certain circles. Now, with regard to whether this interim suspension was correct or too aggressive, you know, this is actually something I've wrestled with. Now, I make no secret about my politics. I have absolutely no love for Rudy Giuliani or what he and his clients and his contemporaries tried to do. I personally don't think he should be practicing law for many reasons, but that's not my decision to make. That said, an interim suspension like this is exceedingly rare, and for good reasons. We haven't had the full process yet. And frankly, an interim suspension from law practice is not going to stop Giuliani from going on TV and saying whatever he wants in his personal capacity, which is frankly the more dangerous part as far as I'm concerned right now. You know, I'm sure his lawyers who are representing him in the disciplinary process have counseled him against doing that while this is pending. But if he's going to want to do it, he can do it. And the um, New York authorities don't have the ability to stop him from doing this. They just have the ability to affect his law license not quiet him. Now, there is some tension here between the First Amendment and what happened here. And this is also where I get tripped up because you know lawyers don't waive their First Amendment rights by becoming lawyers, but there are going to be some limits. Uh, some of these limits are set forth in the court opinion that suspended Giuliani. And the court made a point of saying that the decision did not run against those limits. This was not a decision based on those limits. And when we think about, you know, some of the model rules or the the rules as they are in, in New York and most other states, like 8.4 sub c prohibits lawyers from engaging in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, or misrepresentation and that's a 24/7 rule. It applies in court as well as out. I've seen violations of this rule found when somebody submits uh tax returns that are false. You know, personal tax returns nothing to do with the practice of law other than getting a salary from a law firm that were fraudulent, but Because obviously, you know, model 8.4 sub C can't be applied in all situations involving dishonesty. You know, if that were the case, parents could end up in trouble by talking to their kids about Santa. So where's the line? You know, in court statements and statements filed in court, it's pretty clear those are sanctionable, you know, under various rules, including but not limited to 8.4 sub C. Out of court, well, where's the nexus between what was said And either the lawyer's law practice or the lawyer's fitness to practice law. That's generally where, at least, my state draws the line in Wisconsin. Personal failings like infidelity that involve misrepresentation or deceit, those aren't going to be sanctionable under 8.4 sub C, even if it's clear that there's lying, because that doesn't usually have anything to do with the practice of law. It's just a personal issue. Now, that press conference at which he was appearing and bending or blowing through the truth on behalf of a client may very well violate that rules you're still advocating for a client in a public forum talking to third parties and not telling the truth but on a tv appearance where he was appearing as a pundit or in his personal capacity or as a voter uh, that could very well be a different call. And if I were defending somebody similarly situated, and you know, for the record, I can't imagine somebody similarly situated would be calling me knowing my politics, but that's neither here nor there. But if I were defending somebody similarly situated, I would be bringing up a First Amendment argument. I don't know how successful I would be, but I would be bringing it up.
0: I think that's really, I mean, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, I think it all depends on, like you said, you know, which uh, venue that uh, he was speaking in. But uh, really apt analysis there. I really appreciate that. So last question for you as we close it out. If you're in the predictions game here, do you think Rudy Giuliani ultimately keeps his law license? Or do you think he's looking at, at least from the uh, point of New York, a permanent disbarment?
1: Well, I always advise my clients not to try to read the tea leaves based on what a court does in an interim decision or even an argument. But that said, the opinion telegraphed that more substantial permanent sanctions were likely on the horizon. So whether that means disbarment or a suspension, uh, Rudy Giuliani is 77 years old and A suspension would likely end his legal career regardless. And for that matter, this interim suspension may very well end his legal career because um, the court of a public, you know, he still has to find clients. And right now he can't work in New York. And I don't know how long it will take to get through the New York process. These things can take a couple of years here sometimes to get to a final adjudication. And by that time, I don't know if he even if he's uh, in the unlikely event that no further sanctions are, are deemed appropriate, he may not resume practice.
0: Well, Stacey, thank you so much for being here with us. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Me too. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, tell a friend about our show. Word of mouth is the best type of advertising. And speaking of advertising, one more thank you to our sponsor, Nota Nota. you can find them at trustnotacom forward slash legal. That's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN audio crew for keeping it rubber side down. That's a 4x4 reference, also a mountain biking reference. It means don't wreck. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs> I'm